welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted to have as our guest today, the fabulous Monique Sasson. Hello, Monique. Hello, Ganda. It's great to see you again. Uh, the last time I saw you was at the beginning of uh, March when we were both speakers at a wonderful session organized by New York University. Yes. And I'm sure we'll return to matters academic and uh, in the world of arbitration in the course of this podcast. But let me first of all give our listeners a bit of an introduction to you, Monique, because you've got a wonderful background and I want all of our listeners who don't know you to realize how spectacular that background is. So Monique is a very experienced practitioner and arbitrator and academic. So it's not often that our guests um, are both practitioners, arbitrators and academics, but Monique is one of those. She is qualified in three jurisdictions, in New York, in England and Wales, and in Italy. And uh, she's currently based in the wonderful city of Milano, uh, and also she's worked in the capital of Italy, Roma. Monique uh, has recently returned to Italy after practicing uh, in New York, including at Morgan Stanley in New York and in London, at Herbert Smith in London. And it's a real delight to be having this podcast with Monique because I've admired her for a long time. It's also something that Monique is, is someone who's a lot of fun. You know, when you meet Monique in person, it's always a joyful experience. So Monique, it's a real pleasure to be meeting with you today in this podcast. And I look forward to our discussions on a various number of topics. So let me start off with, with this, Monique. You know, tell us how you discovered law or how law discovered you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, God, and Thank you very much for inviting me. So um, I think I discovered law. <laughs> So I was, I studied in Italy, in Rome, and I was doing what is called here Liceo Scientifico, which shows already that I was very good in math and physics. However, at the end of my, the equivalent of my high school, I thought that Instead, law was really uh, more attractive to me. So at the time, so my parents are refugees from Libya. So we did not have a passport for a long time. And actually, even when I started university, I was stateless. And I've always been very interested in international law since the beginning, because as a matter of fact, I was just going around with a little document showing my name and my uh, place of birth, which was Rome. But uh, in Italy, you have to be a citizen of, you are a citizen if your parents are citizens. So it's a youth sanguinous uh, country, which meant that I was stateless for a little bit. So thankfully, uh, during university, the judgment arrived and we all became Italian finally. But that was why I really was interested since the beginning in international law and in law. 
That's amazing because, yes, I mean, you've got a lot of experience in international law as well, and I'll come to this, because you studied with the wonderful Professor James Crawford, who's now, of course, a judge on the International Criminal Court. Uh, no, sorry, the International Court of Justice. Yeah. I, I, you know, I should just correct myself because James, <laughs> you know, James wouldn't be too happy if I got that wrong because I've known James when he was at Matrix Chambers. So, uh, so, uh, yes. and he and he might be listening to this podcast. So, <laughs> so I must get that right. So that's very interesting. So you, so you began studying law, and then tell us a little bit about how you first got attracted to the discipline of international arbitration? So immediately after finishing so my degree, I was uh, I started my uh, training ship with a, um, a law firm which was doing tax law. So at the beginning I was doing tax law, but one of the partners was a professor of international law. And so I was always trying to get <laughs> to do some researches for him. And he was, he is a famous arbitrator. And that's how I, I really started just by, so I was doing a little bit of tax law and a little bit of, of international law. And this is how we started. I did a lot of investment treaty arbitration. So I graduated in 1993 and started right then with Professor Giardina. And from the beginning, I did arbitration and was mainly investment arbitration. So the beginning uh, and then started doing more commercial arbitration. After a few years, I went to uh, London and I was working at uh, Herbert Smith. And there is where I really saw big cases. And uh, I was working on both litigation involving Italian parties, of course, and then arbitration. And was very interesting because... In those days, it was difficult to see how arbitration was done from a common law perspective. Yeah, and you know that experience. I mean, I've always thought it's very good doing litigation and arbitration because it gives you, you know, more knowledge, more experience, and then of course you can uh, mix and match the two of them. So no, so that's very interesting. And then in terms of your experience. Um, You've obviously had experience in three different jurisdictions where you've practiced uh, and also you've sat as an arbitrator. Are there any particular things that you've especially learned from any of those jurisdictions that stands out for you? Yes. So uh, let's start from New York, <laughs> the last one. So in New York, I really yeah. learned, tell me this story, which I thought at the beginning, coming from Italy, very academic background, I never really thought about how important it is to tell the story, even to an eminent tribunal. So if I can capture in a couple of words what I learned from New York was that, tell me the story, and the story is important because if you lose track of it, then you lose your audience. Then from England, I started to learn how to be succinct and how difficult it is to be succinct. So I thought that core bundles and all um, how English solicitor and barrister organized litigation and arbitration is uh, uh, very important, very effective, because the idea of having a lot of documents and being able to drive your judge or your arbitrator to something specific is always uh, uh, very important. From Italy, I learned how uh, the academic background, so the fact that you need to study and that you cannot think that 
that uh, every case is only factually based. So you always have to think what is that, what is behind there, what is the logic behind certain rules. So I think that it's a mix and match of uh, uh, lots of different components. Plus, in the US, I did uh, mediation because I was at Jams and I saw many class actions when I was at Morgan Stanley, which also gave me a really wide perspective of uh, how things are done and uh, what are really the the pitfalls in how you present the case. Now, that's a wonderful jigsaw puzzle of experience because, uh, you know, it's very interesting. So you learned how to tell the story from the US. You learned how to be succinct from England and Wales. You learned the academic from Italy. And you learned the broader dispute resolution, how can I put it, interpersonal skill set, softer skills from mediation. So, you know, you know, well, that's, you know, that's no surprise then that you're such a, uh, you know, prominent arbitrator. You got that experience and all that. And uh, now that's a real great mix and match, I've got to say. So let us just focus a little bit on your academic side of things. When I last saw you, in New York, when we were both speaking on that panel that I mentioned at New York University, which our dear mutual friend, uh, Franco Ferrari, had organized, uh, amongst others. Um, You had just written an article uh, which had been published, a very detailed article, and a very good one at that, uh, which in fact, I've got the book right in front of me, actually. (laughs) I'm just going to, so that our readers know, um, our listeners know, this is unscripted. I'm showing this to you here. It is the Journal of International Arbitration, and this is the uh, June 2022 edition, where you wrote a very interesting article along with uh, a number of um, a couple of your colleagues yes. on uh, entitled "Empirical Analysis of National Courts Vacatur and Enforcement of International Commercial Arbitration Awards." I would recommend this article to all of our listeners on this podcast. It's a very detailed analysis from a number of jurisdictions about how national courts have dealt with the the issues around whether to set aside, vacate, or partially do so uh, awards in the course of their enforcement. Now, one of the things I just wonder whether, Monique, you could just uh, to tell us a little bit about is when you go about preparing an article like this, and it's a very detailed one, and you did this with a number of your colleagues. I just tell our listeners a little bit about what goes into it. Obviously, a lot of research goes into it, but yeah. how how much time do these things take to research, to draft, to discuss, to edit, and to finalize? A lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, it's always unpredictable. I mean, that article especially was... <laughs> A bit, sort of a bigger commit time commitment than I expected. The issue with the article is much more the prepare. So before you do the research, you have to think about what you want to prove. So what I so what for example in that case what was I thinking before entering into the journey? So I thought I want to do an empirical search because I want to show that empirical data do not ma- do not match anecdotal evidence. So you know you go to conference, people say certain things. So is there a matching between the two or not? And so that was what I was really most focused on. So when I looked at the data, I, ca- I started looking, for example, is there home bias jurisdiction? 
answer was no. <laughs> Is there any institution more that appears more, you know, more often than others? Answer is yes, there is one institution, but do you see that enforcement proceedings have an effect depending on which institution was administering the proceedings? Answer is no. And I thought the opposite. So everybody says that the New York Convention is fantastic, which is true. But and then they sort of they said, oh, New York Convention is a very good tool. We should do the same thing for set aside proceedings. What we saw is that the percentage of enforcement is equivalent to the percentage of arbitration award confirmed. Let me use an American word uh, for arbitration that are not set aside. So, for example, in that, the anecdotal evidence was totally contrary to that. So you have to have it. You have to always think that you have to tell a story, <laughs> even in an article. So you're so you have to do a little research, but then you have to think, what story am I going to tell? And the best, I mean, I think that for me, the worst possible article is just a recapitulation of what is out there. This everybody can do. Um, and I would not, I mean, it's important to have a summary of a case. Sometimes I think it's not that relevant, but you need to tell a story, even <laughs> writing an academic piece. Well, then again, you know, that's great advice and a, and a great insight in, into uh, your work as an academic because, you know, you're again telling a story. And so that lesson you learned about telling a story, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very helpful uh, skill uh, to have. And I'm right in saying that you, you remain um, associated as, as a part of the Washington College of Law at the American uh, University. Well, so I stopped teaching last year. I stopped teaching because it was not possible doing it by Zoom and because of COVID, but it was okay. last year. Yes, yeah. No, well, well, we hope to get you back sometime soon, uh, <laughs> um, again, teaching, because your, um, your work is very insightful. So now let me then just move on then to your work as an arbitrator. You know, you are one of, there are far too few female arbitrators out there. Uh, there need to be more. A lot is being done to improve that. But um, we need to do more to ensure that the world of arbitration is more representative in all aspects of diversity. But here, let's focus on gender diversity and especially female arbitrators. So tell us a little bit about how your life as an arbitrator began. Were there certain people who helped you along the road to become an arbitrator, to gain your first engagements as arbitrator and to get the ball rolling? So, yes. So my first appointments were party appoint appointments. So the issue is that often the institution is a little scared to appoint somebody for the first time. So this is why when we speak about double hatting, especially in the investment regime, I'm always a little skeptical because not only skeptical in general, but I'm always thinking, how did I begin? I, I didn't begin like, I mean, I had somebody who knew me as counsel and therefore decided to appoint me. So for me, in my case, was a lot, a lot had to do with what I had written. 
I think that helps. And of course, uh, speaking at conferences helps, but also working as counsel, working in law firm and having contact with people. Because I, I, I have been uh, appointed from uh, the institution on a couple of occasions, but I still would say that the majority of appointments comes from parties. So unless the parties and their counsel are pushing to have uh, women names or to have diversity on the list in general, this will not happen uh, in general. So I know that my name was on a list, then it was chosen. It was definitely, I mean, I think a part of the movement on having more diversity on the list and also having arbitrators being more honest about their schedule and the fact that they don't want to uh, overcommit because then there will be consequences. So. I think it's both a combination, but yes, people always supported me. And especially, for example, I always had, I worked with Julian Liu for a long time and he's been always a supporter in the sense that he always involved me in uh, uh, speaking engagement, academic engagement. And he definitely, if I can point out somebody, I would definitely make his name. Well, no, that's great. You know, Julian is a wonderful person. I've had Julian as an arbitrator on a couple of cases over the years, and I've known him as well. He's a great mentor to many, many people. And so you actually answered uh, a question I was going to uh, ask you as to had there been any sort of very important figures who had mentored and inspired you in your career. So apart from Julian, are there any other people who over the years have stood out for you as particular influences in your career? So I have Professor Giardina is the professor with whom I started and has been very important to me. And also at the time, Maria Beatrice Adeli, she's a professor of international law with whom I work now in a law firm. And she's always been uh, looking out for me and really teaching me how to present things, how to uh, prepare everything. I also had a mentor who is, funnily enough, not in arbitrator specialist. She is a Professor Severino. She's a crime collar uh, expert. So when I was at Herbert Smith, I was doing a crime collar um, major bankruptcy related um, proceedings and she was in Italy. And to see how she was acting and how she was, I think, really inspired me. And she always been behind me for you know in terms of also of pushing me to do things and and to go independent when i decided to be independent and to be out of a law firm so you know at a bigger law firm so yes uh, these are and then julian lu for sure he's been um, always my mentor throughout all my career he is uh, he's been inspirational everything i mean i i owe everything to him yeah, no, that's a great list of people you you mentioned. And we we all look back on when we started out in, in our careers and as we progress our careers at certain people who've, who've influenced us and who've guided us and who've believed in us. And so, you know, you've named a fantastic list of people there. You know, just thinking about arbitrations and sort of the any locations in the arbitration world that you've particularly enjoyed where you've been sitting as an arbitrator. Are there any particular jurisdictions that you've particularly enjoyed sitting as an arbitrator in? I have to say London. <laughs> London. Well, that's always a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I must say it's uh, 
the most organized, <laughs> the one I love. Uh, coming from Milan, I love the food. Uh, and so I'm a tricky, I love cooking, so I'm not oh, too yeah. easy to eat. <laughs> uh, I love London, I have to say the most. I find that it's uh, for arbitration as a seat, as it's so well organized that uh, by far is the place where I enjoy the most sitting. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've, I've got to say one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm really happy you said that about London, but, you know, one of the only benefits that we've got as a consequence of Brexit is that it hasn't impacted London as an arbitration centre. Absolutely. Uh, and, I agree. Uh, and, but, but we can never take anything for granted because, as, <laughs> as you know, we have now so many incredible jurisdictions like Singapore that have become incredibly popular and which are also great venues for arbitration. But I wonder whether I could ask you this, just my last yeah. question around venues and places for arbitration. During the pandemic, we obviously all had to get very used to doing virtual hearings. Yes. And the fact, and also, as you know, there's now a very strong movement for green arbitration. So there has to be a balance between in-person hearings and the expense that these things inevitably involve when you involve all the, the tribunal, the parties, the clients, and having remote hearings. What's your sense as to where that balance should lie? Well, for now, even if I would say that uh, if there is an issue of credibility, it's very often better to be in person. So for CMC, I would say Zoom, it's a, a fantastic uh, means. But on the other hand, sometimes when parties are located in so many jurisdictions that then the hearing would last a couple of hours or three or four hours, then that would be uh, probably too difficult to accomplish unless there are COVID restrictions by which everybody has to stay there. So I think that we uh, should always be ready to have hybrid type of type of conference so that type of hearing so that if uh, some people cannot participate they will be there on the zoom on the screen i think that what i have seen in my case lot is that uh, if the case doesn't justify everybody moving around the globe it's better to have a zoom hearing i would say in general parties from a civil law background often like Zoom, because for them, cross-examination is not going to last long, is not a detailed exercise, and so it's more of uh, the pleading side, and the pleading can be done very well uh, on Zoom. Often it's also a matter of how much is on stake, if all the costs are justifiable or not. Yeah, I agree with you, and there's, and as you rightly mentioned, there's this distinction between lawyers from a civil law jurisdiction and a common law jurisdiction when it comes to things like cross-examination, documents, disclosure, dare I say, red phone <laughs> schedules. <laughs> I mean, you know, we could go on about all this, couldn't we? But but this is what makes arbitration so interesting because it's a real mix of cultures, of jurisdictions and traditions. It's a real mix, isn't it? That's great. And then tell us a little bit about what you think about, I mean, if, if I was to say to you, Monique, is there one thing that if you could wave a magic wand that would make arbitration a better form of dispute resolution mechanism, is there one particular reform that we could make that would 
make it a much better mechanism? I think it's for now, for me, I've I think that the due process paranoia, and it's not my word, but it's Klaus Peterberger words, if that would to disappear. So if the obsession of, you know, arguing on every single little thing would disappear, then things would be better. So if I have one that would just sort of uh, um, say that do not argue on every little point, just argue on the main one, tell the story and tell what is relevant to the story. Yeah, I think that's so true, though, isn't it? You know, being succinct and just telling the story is very is is so important. You know, one of the things I must tell you that particularly frustrates me is the length of statements of case. Yeah, they are in so many cases in in international arbitrations just far too long. Absolutely, and people treat them like offshore litigation. They just make them so voluminous, argumentative and just repetitive and hard to read. I just I just think the simpler you set it out, the better, because arbitrators are all human, right? So they like <laughs> simplicity, like we all do, in my view. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's my uh, thing. But um, it really is fascinating talking to you about these sorts of issues and um you know, I just think the more we can do to improve arbitration surely is a good thing because it's, it is it is by far the most important mechanism for dispute resolution. So the more we can do to, to improve it, the better. So um, it's great to know that you've got these views to make it better. So now let me, as we now come towards the end of our podcast, it's very traditional uh, in this series. And indeed, it's very popular with our listeners that we ask our guests some fun questions which are not related to <laughs> arbitration, litigation, mediation, academia, or any jurisdictions uh, of, of arbitration. And these are just very lighthearted questions. And just so our listeners know, these are not um, things that Monique knows I'm going to ask her. So I'm <laughs> going to ask her these things, right? So Monique, what is your favorite sort of music? Have you got a favorite band, a favorite album? It's Italian. Singer. <laughs> ah, very good. It's Italian. It's very old, so it will uh, show my age definitely. But yeah, I love Franco Battisti. It's an Italian singer that uh, I mean, I think dead by now. But uh, all his songs are seventeen and eighties songs that I love very much. Mm. Oh, very good, very good. Yes, I, I know. I like that. And you know, you mentioned you like. You love cooking. You mentioned this at yes. the beginning of our discussion. Name a couple of cuisines apart from Italian, yes. which you particularly love. Oh, I like Japanese cuisine in general. So, and then I love Middle Eastern. So, my parents are from Libya, and uh, we do cook. You know, all the um, sort of stew that are from there and I love all of that I have to say so I don't know if it's really Libyan or if it's Moroccan cuisine mm. all of that but there are a couple of plates spicy and uh, you know the tagine uh, so with couscous and chickpeas and uh, mm. well, you're making me hungry you're making me hungry Monique <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm thinking mm, yum yum you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> and then tell us a little bit about if uh, you were to have if let's say you have a Sunday afternoon free and it's raining outside and you can't really do much and you want to watch a film, is there a film, a particularly favorite film of yours 
that you would love to watch at such a at such a quiet time? I have to say I would go to the theater. I'm not so much I I don't like TV at all. So for me, if it were possible, I would go. I mean, I would see Tom Stoppard any day, anytime, repeatedly. Cost of Utopia for me. Mm. So yeah, so I would do theater or maybe sometimes you see them as a film, made as a film. So yes, but I'm not at home. I have, uh, after Zoom, we have memberships. And so I would dance. So I would put on the screen, on the TV screen and uh, some dance lessons. And that's what I would do. <laughs> oh, lovely. I, I dancing too. Yes, if I weren't yeah. able, yes, I, would, I always did. Amazing. <laughs> well, this is what I love from uh, New York, because in New York, you would just go to mm. a dance studio and just do that. So It's amazing. There is nothing you can't do, Monique. You are, <laughs> no. you are, t- you are, you are mega talented in every respect. Um, and uh, if you were to be able to, no, let me ask you one more before we turn to my last question. Let me ask you one. And again, our listeners don't, uh, just so our listeners know, Monique has no idea what I'm going to ask her. So you live in the great city of Milano, which is of course famous for many things, uh, but one of the things it's very famous for is it's football. So do you support AC Milan or, or Internazionale? No, I support Roma. <laughs> oh, you support Roma. So not Lazio. So not Lazio. You're Roma. Okay, Roma, okay. Very popular team, you know, so absolutely Roma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. a great team, a great team. I've only been to the Stadio Olimpico once and I went there to watch the Six Nations rugby between Italy and England at the Stadio oh. Olimpico. Beautiful. And uh, it was a great experience. It was it was a great experience. Um, and I must say, I love Roma myself. Actually, <laughs> I much prefer Roma to Milano. So I'm glad you said that. So my last question to you is this: You're a very international person, and you've travelled a lot around the world. Is there one particular place that you really love to go to? my Rome so now that I live in Milan is Rome and definitely London both of them are in so I have to say so my my grandparents from Libya they moved to London so I used to go to London as uh, sort of you know every year many times and so yeah I for me London and everywhere there London and Rome fantastic well two superb choices to <laughs> conclude our a podcast. Monique, thank you very much for being such a wonderful guest. I always enjoy talking to you and I always leave every discussion with you happier and having laughed a lot. So I mean, I, I, I'm very grateful to you for taking the time out to do this podcast and I know our listeners will enjoy it and I look forward to seeing you in person again very, very soon. Thank you very much, God, and thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.